Well, hello again. It's great to be with you. Once again, we are out on the road. We are broadcasting today from sunny Dundee across the Silvery Tay. And across the table with me is equally silvery Andy Bannister. Andy, it is good to see you. It is great to uh, be with you, David, even after the silvery reference. It's just the way the sunlight is catching my hair, that's yeah, all it is. Yeah, you, yeah, you're looking rather more mature these days. Is it silver or grey? Yeah, we'll save that for another episode, I think. I have more than you, that's the main thing. So, uh. Well, uh, slightly. Let me just interest, um, not interest, because he's not interested. Let me just introduce Andy Bannister to you. Andy is the, well... You tell the folks who you are, Andy. That's because you've forgotten, haven't you? No, so. I know exactly who you are. At least I can pronounce it properly. Very good. So, <laughs> so I am the uh, director of the Solas Centre. Solas. Solas. Well, I'm, yeah, we're all full of immigrants here. So that's Solas, Solas, Solas Centre for Public Christianity based here in, uh, in Dundee. And so we may wonder why it is called Solas. And it's called Solas because it's a kind of play on words. It is, isn't it? Um, Solas is the Gaelic for light. And it's also a little bit of wordplay on the solos, five solos of the Reformation. And if you don't know what that is, just Google just them. Just Google it. But it's not an acronym. Do you know, if I had a quid for every time someone comes up to me at an event, David, and says, so is, is, is SOLAS an acronym? I could, I could fund the whole thing. You, you, you've you got to make one up. The first S has got to be Scottish, of course. Yes. The Scottish Office for Laughs and Sarcasm. I think that would describe our, our team meetings. Sounds good. So you're a bit of a Monroe bagger. You were out in the hills yesterday. I was, yeah. I'm working my way up the Monroes. And uh, I, I mean, I feel a, I'm a lightweight. I only started this year. So I have, uh, I think, 28 or 29 under my belt. But yes, Thanks. I was uh, climbing the hills behind Pitlockery yesterday. And we had a two foot of snow on the ground. It was exciting. It was a winter wonderland. But boy, it's hard work. So. Great. So you've really embraced the Scottish thing, haven't you? Well, I've always loved Scotland. I mean, it was a real privilege to, to be asked to come and lead, lead the organisation here because I'd come here, you know, many times on holiday, climbed lots and explored lots. So, yeah, always, always loved Scotland. Um, and uh, my family, uh, at least on my father's side, hailed from the north. My grandfather was a Yorkshireman. And so... That's you know, not north, that's deep south. I know, that's the funny thing. Now it's south, but I've always liked the north. When I was raised in London, any opportunity to get north... And especially the Highlands for Scotland and Sky, a place I really, really love. So. Ah, excellent. You're pushing the right buttons. Push the right you, buttons. There we go. Praise Sky. Mm, yeah. Sky. Okay, let's get on to business now. Whenever right. we talk about solace, uh, we always think of apologetics. Can you tell our good listeners what you understand by apologetics? Yeah, that's a great question, um, David. And you will actually, observant followers of, uh, of Solas, will realize that. We don't really use the word much these days because I think the very fact you have to ask and many listeners may not know what it means. So what we've done actually is we prefer the, the term persuasive evangelism. So as one of my friends used to like to put it, there are two types of evangelism. There's persuasive evangelism and unpersuasive evangelism. Which would you rather engage in? And so apologetics is simply that branch of Christian theology concerned really with giving reasons why Christians believe what we do. First Peter 3.15 talks about giving a reason for the hope that you have. And so it's really helping us, uh, helping communicate in a way and helping Christians learn to communicate in a way that we, we share Jesus absolutely because he remains front and centre. But when people have stumbling blocks or questions or obstacles to faith, we don't run away from those. We try and take those on and share the good answers. So apologetics is persuasive evangelism. Okay, so can someone become a Christian, um, be turned from darkness into light, become a follower of Jesus simply by intellectual reasoning? No, 
is the simple answer. Um, but intellectual bit. reasoning does a couple of things. Um, the first thing is that, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis, great hero to many, many Christians, great thinker and communicator. He had a friend of his at Oxford University called Austin Farrer. And Austin made an interesting remark once. He said, arguments can't create faith but they can create the climate in which faith is possible. So if somebody thinks, I can't even consider Christianity because it's just for intellectual losers, it's got no answers, it, it's incoherent in the world of science, all those things, they're not even going to look at Jesus because they don't even think it makes sense. But if you can show somebody that there are good reasons for Christian faith, you can be a Christian and embrace the life of the mind. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with heart, mind, and soul. And look, here are some good reasons. Now, take a look at Jesus. Um, you can change the game. The, the other way I sometimes approach it with people is to say, you know, I like to think of apologetics as, as bush clearing. What do I mean? Well, um, you know, I lived in Canada for six years and I used to say to Canadian audiences, lots of people in, in places like Toronto in Canada who've got the money uh, will also buy houses up in Lake Country. And I would say, imagine I, you know, bought a, bought a really cheap log cabin in Canada, uh, sight unseen, and I, and I arrived to take possession of my new property and I opened the back uh, doors expecting to see a lake and all I see is bushes and trees and, and undergrowth and I, you know, ring up my good friend and I and grumble about how I've been ripped off by the real estate agent and so forth and he re listens to me talk for a moment. He says, well, just stay right there. He hops in his truck and he drives out to see me. Half an hour later, he turns up with a chainsaw, takes his chainsaw and cuts down all the undergrowth and lo and behold, the lake emerges. Has my friend created the lake view? No, he hasn't. He's cleared the bushes so he can, that I can see the lake view. And I think that's what apologetics does. Can we clear away the baggage? Can we clear away the rubble um, so that we can clear away the undergrowth so people can go, oh, that's who Jesus is, not the caricature they may have in mind. Okay, so I quite often meet Jehovah's Witnesses in the street and stuff like that, and they're really nice, godly, sincere people. But one thing that really annoys me, not so much about them, but about the whole experience is they've got answers for absolutely everything. They never seem to be able to say, I don't know. As you, as an apologetics, have you got answers for absolutely everything? It's a really easy podcast because the only answer to this is no. <laughs> um, I'd say, and again, a couple, of, a couple of things there. I think you're absolutely right that I think Christians, particularly those who like the life of the mind, and particularly those who are drawn to apologetics, can, if they're not careful, enthusiastically begin to assume they have answers to everything. Um, and we don't. Um, and I think it's foolish to try and claim that we do because people see right through that, whether it's from you know religious people or politicians or so forth. So I think there's actually nothing wrong when someone asks you a question of saying, you know, that's a good question. I don't know the answer. But look, is that question really important to you? Because if it is, I'll go and find the answer. Although I may not have the answer to everything, David, I do believe there are answers to everything. And sometimes those answers take searching and, and, and finding out. So I think that's the first thing. That said, though, I often also caution Christians, make sure when you tell your friend, I don't know the answer, the question they've asked you is not something blindingly obvious you should probably have thought about. If someone says to you, you know, how can you be a Christian in a world of evil and suffering? And you go, oh, I don't know. I've never really thought about that. Mm -hmm. You actually just look like a doofus yeah. because the world is a very real place and we have to think that through. So for some of the big questions about our faith as Christians, we need to be thinking uh, around them. And then the other thing I just add, I think, I think it's really important that we recast evangelism and apologetics a little bit around asking questions. I think the very model that you described there with your JW kind of friend that you encounter, that perhaps you, you said something or raised something and they go into download mode, mm -hmm. that scares people off. And I mm -hmm. find it fascinating when you read the Gospels, Jesus primarily used good questions as his way in dialogues. He would ask good questions. And I think if we can learn to do that as Christians, um, so actually when someone comes to me with an objection, I try not to go straight into 
download information to the mode, I like to begin by saying, that's a really good question. Why, why do you ask it? Of all the questions you could ask, why that one? And, and, and explore around it a little bit with them. Often you find the question they've asked is not the question they're actually, they're not really struggling with. There's something deeper underneath. Um, and often, again, if you don't know the answer, you may still have the opportunity to share something helpful uh, even if you can't answer their question immediately and you have to go and do some work. Okay, but we live in a culture where folk are looking for quick, snappy answers. They're looking for a YouTube clip of two and a half minutes and some things are really complex. You know, there's that famous West Wing episode where, you know, they're talking about human sexuality and Jed Bartlett, of course, quotes the famous passage in Leviticus about shellfish and that's argument over. Whereas you and I know that that's, you know, a complex issue and the unfolding mm. revelation of the Bible, you know, uh, from Genesis to Revelation is complicated. How do you cope with dealing with what are quite complex issues mm. in a society that's looking for a soundbite? Yeah. I think there are, t there are a couple of things one can do there. I think there are some things that you can share in more in shorter form, as long as you are conscious that you are thereby simplifying. So at Solas, for example, we're very well known for our short answer videos. Where we put those out. We've had you know approaching a million engagements with those over the two years they've been they've been running, and so we get good feedback that they're helpful. I'm always very keen to stress to people we call them short answers for a reason. They are not the last. Yep. word and, the, and it's dangerous for Christians if you present it to an atheist friend as this is the last word rather than this is something to think about and maybe start a conversation um, I think the other thing is that I think actually more people than, than we often imagine out there are actually open to longer conversations actually people know it's a sound by culture and if you say to a friend if they ask a question I think if you say to somebody that's a really good question I have to be honest with you I can't give you a sound by answer sure. if you've got time for a coffee I can share some thinking. I think you'd be surprised how often people are actually willing, you know, for, for that to be the case. And then sometimes I'm a great believer in illustrating as well. If someone's not convinced by that, I think you can say, isn't it interesting that the most important things in life are often require more than soundbite answers? Mm -hmm. You've got a complicated medical diagnosis. Your doctor won't go, you've got a really complex condition, but I'm going to reduce it to three words. Mm -hmm. um, if you ask someone, you know, who's been married for a long time, tell me, tell me what your wife or, or husband really means to you in two words. They go, well, I can't describe my relationship in that. Or in the sciences, if you ask someone to explain quantum physics or string theory, and you say you've got 100 letters to do it in, they're going to look at you, Brian Cox or whoever, look at you and go, get out of town. So but people are less forgiving when it comes to Christianity. You know, you, you, you they'll take you know that chapter in Leviticus and say, explain that. Now, if you took war and peace, you, you would never go through you know uh, a page two thirds of the way through and say, yeah, hey, that's what it's all about. Whereas you've got to say, let's go down, let's follow the plot line, let's see where yeah. it, it develops. I think so, and I think I definitely agree with you that part of our part of our task as Christian communicators, whether we're doing it like you or I, who are people who are preachers and speakers, or whether you're just somebody listening to this who wants to share your faith with your friends at work, helping it with slow down and think. I think one of the struggles in our culture is we're going so fast, no one has space. And I think that that causes problems on a whole range of levels. What excites me is we're not the only ones noticing this. There are lots of secular authors out there who are saying, you know, we live in an age where people have forgotten what it is to think deeply. Uh, you know, one of my one of my heroes is a wonderful a wonderful uh, writer and sociologist called Sherry Turkle, based at MIT. And she's done some great work on this. Her book, cut from a year or two ago, called Reclaiming Conversation, is a brilliant book. Mm -hmm. She's a sort of liberal Jew-ish background. But she says, you know, we live in an age where we are suffering from having forgotten how to speak to each other, whether it's about spirituality or life or 
ethics or whatever it is. It's a wonderful book. And the great thing is it's a neutral book. You can, you know, I love, I love reading things that you can recommend to friends, be they, be they Christian or otherwise, and say, hey, what do you think? Yeah, now, um, interesting, you, your own academic background is quite interesting because although here you are, you're a, uh, you're a Christian apologist, you are into persuasive evangelism, and yet your research interests are not in Christianity, your research interests are in Islam. How did all that happen? <clears throat> Well, I always like to joke the reason I ended up doing a PhD in Islam was I just ticked the wrong box on the university application <laughs> form and it was three months in before I realised this was Arabic and not Greek. Um, the more serious answer to that question was in the late 1990s, I was a youth worker working for a group of churches in London and a gentleman came to our church and did a seminar on Islam and he was very persuasive, very engaging, very charismatic speaker. And I went, um, he, he, particularly he talked about uh, the fact that every Sunday afternoon he and a team of others were at Speaker's Corner, a Hyde Park in London, on stepladders preaching to the many Muslims actually who could be found there at Speaker's Corner. And I went up to him afterwards and talking away and he said, well, why don't you come to Speaker's Corner next week and see what we do? So I thought this sounded very interesting. So the following week I met him at Marble Arch Tube Station in, in London and he was carrying two stepladders. And I said, why have you got two ladders? He went, one is for you, one is for me. I said, I thought you should come and see what we do. He went, oh, the best view is up a ladder. I went, I've never preached on the street before. He went, it's easy. I've never talked to Muslims before. They're easy. Both those statements were wrong. Mm -hmm. And I was utterly humiliated. Uh, the Muslims there uh, had lots of questions for Christians that they knew how to heckle. They knew how to raise difficulties and objections. I'd thought about none of this. And I remember think, walking home thinking, well, maybe I need to become a Muslim because they seem to have everything and I have nothing. Uh, but I thought before I do that, maybe I should do some digging. So I went off to the local Christian bookstore the next morning and told my story. And they said, you need apologetics. That word again, first time I think mm -hmm. I'd ever heard it. And I bought my first ever books on how you can begin to answer these kind of questions. Went back three weeks later with answers to every question they had asked. And... Um, they had new questions mm. and it repeated itself. But for the next three months, I would go to Speaker's Corner on the weekends, David, talk to Muslims, um, really kind of struggle to answer the questions. But I, I got better, it got easier every time and I would read to answer the ones that I couldn't answer. And God through, a number, through that did a number of things. He gave me a love of public evangelism, love of sharing my faith with Muslims. I find them amazing people to talk with and just a love of, of studying. And that eventually led to theological college. And then I felt I only wanted to go further. And it was obvious to me that what I wanted to do was get a PhD and in particularly Quranic studies, uh, Islamic studies, because I wanted to understand my Muslim friends. Yeah, I, w I was uh, in an Uber yesterday, actually, <clears throat> and, um, you know, the driver was a Muslim, and he was just, just a great guy. And one of the things I discovered was it's really easy to talk to him about religion, faith. He doesn't, you know, you don't come over as, as an idiot. You can have a really respectful conversation. Absolutely. And it's funny you say that to go, I have lots of good conversations in, in Ubers um, with, uh, with Muslims. And you're absolutely other right. Other firms are available. Other, firm, other, other taxi firms are available. Or you can just walk. Um, but yeah, so to encourage people, I think you're, I love the way you describe that. That to go often, I think we get quite nervous about sharing our faith because in a, in a more secular context, we, we're not sure you know, that our secular friends are kind of ready for that. But Muslims, they love to talk about their faith. Um, and so often when I'm with taxi drivers of, of any company, um, if I suspect the, uh, the guy who's driving me is a, is a Muslim, sometimes just ask, say, oh, yeah. you know, particularly find out where they're from. That's yeah. an easy way. Yeah. Where are you from? There's one the other day, you know, down at Heathrow Airport, or Pakistan. Oh, are you, so are you a Muslim? And uh, they're often there, they're, yeah. And they'll very easily, and they, they don't mind at all if you then, once you've asked them some questions about their family and stuff, then say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah. I think stuff, uh, it's 
it's, it's much easier than you would think. Yeah, an issue that I find with a lot of my friends is, you know, they talk about Islam or, or Muslims and they don't appreciate that it's very, very broad. You know, it's as wide as Christianity. You can talk about Christianity from, you know, that covers everything from Westboro Baptists to, to the Pope and everything in between, you know. So it's it's difficult to pin it down. But here's just a couple of questions. Aye. Let's tease out about uh, Islam. We're talking about Allah. Now, Allah is the Arabic view uh, word for God. Is Allah the same as the God that the Christians believe in? Now, there's a question. To answer that, well, I think have I'm you been it, asked it before? Yeah, <laughs> funny enough, yeah, yes, many times, and I'm doing. A, I'm writing a book on that next year. Oh, um, so I, I would want to break it down into two parts. Like we talked earlier about complex questions, it's quite a complex question. So let's do the let's do the first half of the question: Is um, do Muslim are Muslims trying to worship the same God as the as the God of the Bible? That's uh, that's that's a sub part of that question. To which I would say many of them are. Um, think of Acts 17, where Paul is there in Athens, wanders around Athens, sees all these temples and whatnot, and as a good monotheistic Jew, you'd expect Paul to, you know, to, 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 have, to, to, to flip a nut and really yell and rant at the Athenians. He doesn't. He praises them and says, you're so religious. I even discovered a, an altar to the unknown God. Ah, let me tell you who that is. And he bridges off their pagan belief and, and tries to bring them all in towards the gospel. And I think there are many Muslims who are in that situation. They're, they're reaching out for the God of the Bible. They just haven't encountered who, who he is. Now, the second half of the question, does the Quran describe the God of the Bible? Is the Allah of the Quran the same as the, as the Yahweh of the Bible? No, I would say. And the, and the reason I would say that very, very simply, and if, people, if listeners want the longer answer, go buy my book, available from all good bookstores, God willing, sometime around about June 2020, um, is the Bible, I think, is far more concerned, not with the question, is there a God? I don't think the Bible is particularly interested in that question. It's far more interested in the question is who is God and what is he like? Yeah. And as you look across the Old and New Testaments, I think a number of themes emerge, and there's four I tend to use all the time. I say the God of the Bible is a God who's relational. Um, think, you know, he's the God who walks and talks in the garden with Adam and Eve. He's the God who steps into history in the person of Jesus. He's the God who will walk and talk with us in the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21. He's a relational God. Um, and the Bible is full of relational terms for God. The main term that Christians are told to use to describe God is he's our father. Um, he's also God who's made himself known. He doesn't just reveal his commands and instructions. He reveals his very own character, reveals his very own name. That amazing scene in Exodus 3 where God reveals his personal name to Moses, very intimate scene. But can I stop you there? Is Allah not relational because he is the most merciful? So presumably he shows mercy to people. Let, and, yeah. and has he not revealed his character in the Quran? Let me come to that in a, in a moment. Okay. Um, uh, God, the Bible is also God of love. Um, that's one of his main chief attributes. And he's also a God who's demonstrated that love through the suffering that he went through in the person Jesus on the cross. So I take those four characteristics. Then we look in the in the Quran. So in terms of relational, um, God doesn't relate actually in the Quran. He sits up he sits up in heaven and sends commands down. Very interesting that two two places illustrate this beautifully. Firstly, the Quran borrows biblical stories, retells them and changes them. Adam and Eve in the garden, classic example, retold in the Quran, Allah does not walk and talk in the garden. Mm. Um, the final uh, prophet in, in Islam, Muhammad, the, 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 the seal of the prophets, he never encounters Allah. Allah sends down the Quran via an intermediary. It comes through the angel Gabriel. We have nothing like the encounter that Moses has at the burning bush. We have nothing like the encounter that Abraham has in, in Genesis with the Lord. None of those th the things where the Lord powerfully encounters people. And uh, so he's, a, he's, he's, he's distant. He's, he's non-relational. In terms of making himself known, actually you'd be amazed how little there is about the character of God. 
um, in the Quran, mainly his instructions. In fact, Muslim theologians are very clear on this point. Um, I forget which Muslim theologian it was now off the top of my head, but there's a very well-known Muslim Sunni theologian who says only adjectival descriptions occur in in the Quran. Uh, you know, Allah behaves mercifully, he behaves lovingly yeah. in certain situations, but M- Muslim theolo- theology has never been tempted to therefore say God is... God is loving or God is whatever. Merciful uh, is interesting. Well, loving is the next one. The Quran mentions love in connection with God very few times, mainly to tell us who he doesn't love. The most common word is merciful. And Muslims who are drawn to the idea of the love of God will often say, well, God is merciful in the Quran. He is, but there's a big difference between love and mercy. If you see a little mouse run across your you know, your floor at home in your kitchen, David, and you, and you trap it under a bowl and put a bit of cardboard under and release it into the garden rather than whack it with a mallet, mm-hmm. you have shown mercy to the rodent. I don't think you love the wee mouse. You've just been merciful. Merciful. You can be merciful entirely without without love. So love and mercy are quite different. And then suffering, the God of the Quran has not suffered. There is no cross. There is no atonement. There's actually no redemption in the Quran. There's nothing done to deal with the problem uh, of sinfulness. So how is one redeemed? How does one... Yeah, that leads to that question. How, how are you reconciled to God? Yeah. So, well, even that language of reconciled to God is not really there in the Quran because in, in, in the Bible, of course, what's primarily gone wrong is this is great breakdown in relationship between us and our creator. So Adam and Eve had this relationship of close intimacy. When they eat the fruit of the tree, they're, they're, they're barred from the garden and separation between humankind and God is set up and the rest of the story follows. In the Quran, it's interesting actually that the, the sin of Adam and Eve happens in paradise and they're thrown not out of the garden, but down from the garden to the earth, place of trial and testing. And then really the way that you achieve, um, you would get, the way you get back into paradise is probably the way the Quran would frame it, is that God has given instructions and commands. You keep those laws, keep those instructions and, and try and ensure the good deeds that you do outweigh your bad deeds and then you kind of throw yourself upon the on the mercy of God. Um, problem with that, of course, if our fundamental condition as human beings is that we can't keep God's commands. I think that's you know the great story of humanity, that as soon as we're given a command, we want to break it. We see that from toddlers upwards. I often say to my Muslim friends, if the problem we have is that we can't keep God's commandments, God sending us more is rather like you or I seeing a man drowning in a river and saying, oh, you're drowning. Let me throw you a bucket of water. Yeah, yeah. Um, nothing is done by the Quranic God to actually deal with the fact that we cannot humanly keep the law. And so put those characteristics up, compare them to the God of the Bible, and I say that the characteristics are so wildly different, this is not this is not the same God. Yeah, it's, it's a bit like, you know, uh, someone comes to me and says, do you remember John Smith from school? Yeah. And you say, yeah, yeah, I remember John, a really extrovert big guy. No, no, he was, he, he was an introvert wee guy. Uh, and, you know, they've got the yeah. same name, but they're displaying different characteristics. That's exactly it. And I, that's, I use a version of that analogy as well. And I think when we start thinking about God in terms of characteristics... And actually, again, I'm believing in the power of analogy. Sometimes people get a bit confused and they think about Islam. But if I was to say to you, you know, I came across a strange guy in Edinburgh the other weekend. He's, he's, he's part of this religion of about three people, and they actually believe that God is a fried egg. Yeah. Um, would you believe that's the same God? And most people at that point go, well, that's clearly not the same God. Right. Okay, because that's wildly different. Now, the question is, how different do the characteristics need to be before we recognize the God we're describing is 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 different. Okay, so here's, a, here's another question. If we were having a conversation with Muslims, and indeed there may be some of our Muslim friends listening, um, would you start that conversation off by saying, by talking about the similarities with our faith or the differences in our faith? 
I would start actually by finding out about their faith. Sure. I would do a Paul in Athens. You see, Paul and I, I, I love... fear, isn't it? Well, I love Acts 17 because you can learn so much from what Paul does there. You know, there's first couple of verses of, of, of that passage in Acts 17, verses 16 and following, where, where Paul starts his time in Athens walking around and looking. And I often say to Christians, when you engage someone of a different faith, and I include atheists as a faith position, why not start by finding out what your friend believes? Um, even I, I mean, I've been studying Islam for 20 years. My trap is I can think I know what Muslims believe because I've read so much. And to go, even I have to remember, every Muslim can be different. There are some strange mm-hmm. sects out there. People construct their own versions of mm-hmm. things. They are different degrees of orthodoxy. So, you know, so tell me what you believe. What do you believe about God? for example. And then what I'm looking for is the opportunity to begin bridging across to the gospel. I'll often bridge it across by looking for ways to start talking about two things, love and sin, are I think the two ways in. The idea of how do you deal with the fact that we don't measure up to God? And I think many of our Muslim friends are quite aware that they are, they struggle in various areas. We all do as human beings. And then the whole question of who is God? Does God actually love us? Um, and when I can get those two pieces together into the conversation, of course, you're you're lining up the aircraft to come in on the runway yeah. of the cross, really, and going, you know, the reason I'm a Christian is, you know, I agree with you. I think I think sin is a problem. I think like you, I'd say my Muslim, I struggle. I think I, I do believe God is a God of love. And because he's a God of love, I think he's done something about the problem of of sin. And that's why I, you know, I take Jesus very, very seriously. So I'm looking for those two connecting points over the years have been, have been helpful ones. Yeah. I think often another issue that folk have is that they compare Islam with Christianity as like for like. Yes. Um, I'm curious, for example, you take their holy book, the, the Quran, would I be right in saying that, you know, whereas Christians, we will have a Bible study when we'll sit down and we'll analyze the Bible mm. and we'll engage with the Bible. Could you have in a traditional Islamic setup a Quran study, or would that be regarded as blasphemous? Oh, definitely not blasphemous. And uh, there are, you know, there are definitely Muslims who have studied their Quran, and there are mosques who do sort of Quran study stuff. So it's not blasphemous. I think the issue is there are two issues going on here, though, David. Firstly, the way that most Muslims, not all, but most relate to the Quran, is it's really the idea is that you recite it in the Arabic, and it's the power of the language, the power of the sound that makes the impact. So you so don't I, need to understand it. Absolutely. I yeah. know Muslims who will, who will talk about the power of the Quran, and you say, but you don't speak Arabic. Oh, but can you not hear how beautiful it is? So there's an, there's an oral kind of quality to it um, that, that is not so the same in the way that we approach the, the, the Bible is the, is the first thing. And then secondly, I think because the very nature of the Quran, the Quran feels like a very jumbled up book when you read it. There, there is some order and some coherence to it in places, but there are other places I think it has been quite oddly edited. Um, and so, you know, whereas for us, we might sit down and do a, you know, a Bible study on, say, you know, a chapter of the Gospels, for example, it hangs together, it coheres, there's an order to it. There's very few places in the Quran where you could go, hey, let's take a run of 30 or 40 verses and it will be clear, it will make sense, and we can sort of discuss it together. It's a different um, genre, of course, from a different culture. Very different. Well, not just the whole culture, the whole religious background. I think one of the reasons that, that Christians have sometimes got confused about the Quran and, and Islam and its relationship to Christianity is uh, I always want to be very clear to people and say, you know, the whole Allah being the same God, it's more drastic than that. The, the, the Islam is not a sister religion to Judaism and Christianity. What's so it's got, not one of the big Abrahamic religions? Gosh, no, you dispute that? categorically yep. not. And, and I think actually critical scholarship is, is zeroing more on this. What is What does go on when Muhammad is preaching what then becomes the Quran back in 7th century Arabia, there are lots of other religious ideas sloshing around the culture, and he picks up stories and traditions that are being told 
That's why Abraham turns up there. That's why Moses turns up there. That's why Jesus turns up there. That's also why other local Arabian traditions turn up there. But just as if you sat down, if you knew nothing about Jesus, but you maybe heard his name a couple of times, and you sat down to start a new religion you know, here in Scotland, and you threw in some bits of Buddhism, sure. a bit of Christian, and you published a little book that you claimed as your scripture, and Jesus turned up, and Buddha turned up, and Nicholas Sturgeon turned up, and goodness says whatever, to go, it'd be foolish to go, oh, David's new religion is, is related to Christianity. No, it's not. So it's not you wouldn't even call it as a heresy of Christianity no, or Judaism. I think that's to try and bring it into the category of uh, too close to being Christian categories. The best analogy, because we've been using quite a lot of analogies today that, that, that I found helpful over the years, is if you go you know, south from here, from where we're recording this, uh, you know, 100 or so miles, you come to Hadrian's Wall, built to keep the English out. Or the English it wasn't very really successful. Around. No, exactly. Um, if you go either side of Hadrian's Wall, you can find lots of medieval farm buildings. And then we know they're medieval farm buildings because of the style of the of, of the uh, architecture and so forth. Lots of medieval farm buildings built out of Roman stone. So what's going on? Were the Romans, when they'd finished building Hadrian's Wall, going around building medieval farm buildings? No, of course they weren't. The reason that a medieval farm building was built out of Roman stone is medieval farmers like, we need some stone. Oh, look, there's a great old load of dressed stone up there on the hill. We've no idea what it is. We'll just rob the wall out and use it to build our farm buildings. In other words, they've built their farms out of bits of Roman archaeology. Same is going on in the Quran. The Quran, or chunks of it, have been built out of bits of biblical tradition and Arabian tradition. It doesn't mean, in the same way that medieval farm building is not Roman, it equally means the Quran is not a Jewish text. It's not a Christian text, even though there are, bit, there are names in there that you might recognize. Uh, and so it's far healthier, I think, to see the Quran and Islam as a, as a completely different religious movement. That means we study it in its own right. And I'm always saying this in academic settings. If we try and read the Quran uh, or understand Islam through a prism of Christianity, we will distort sure. Islam and actually will distort Christianity as well. Absolutely. Now, just uh, moving on to some other stuff, um, the environment, that's a big thing just now. Greta Thunberg is uh, the Time magazine you know, personality of the year. Uh, I noticed that Solace have been doing a little bit of thinking about this environment. Really, do we care? It's all going to oh, know, great. Get, get burnt up anyway, so great. who cares? Well, great question. And, um, you know, a sign of how important that is, I did a, I spoke at a youth event uh, organised uh, down in London in September called Reboot, organised by my friends at Ravi Zacharias Ministries. And we had about 14, 1,500 young people there for the day. And uh, as part of the day, they could text, they could submit questions using an online kind of software thing we were using. And I think those guys submitted, I don't know, five, six, seven hundred questions across the day. They're about 15 to 20% were on the environment. So particularly for younger people, it's a hugely important question. And I think one of the reasons it's an important question, and also I think one of the reasons why it's an apologetic issue, is exactly as you describe it there, Christians are perceived as not caring, or even worse, being part of the problem. Um, part of the reason has been, of course, the misunderstanding of the word dominion in Genesis, yep. when Christians okay. give, when God gives human beings dominion over creation. I think actually Christians have sometimes misunderstood that. Steward is better. Yeah, well, the analogy I sometimes use is if I lend you the keys to my Volvo, I have given you dominion over it, that means I sort of expect to get it back afterwards in one piece. If okay. you bring it back dented, scratched and covered in vomit, I'm not going to go, well that's okay, I gave David dominion over my car again. Yeah, but when I drove it the other day it was dented, scratched and full of vomit. So, you know, so exactly. And so I think when, when, when God gives us dominion over that there's, that, there's that idea of care and protection 
in there as well. And of course, one of the things that we just talked about Islam, one of the things I find striking about the Bible compared to the Quran, the Quran talks about creation, but nowhere does God in the Quran speak over creation as he does in Genesis 1, saying this is good, this is good, this is good, this is good. So clearly the message comes through from the scripture is God loves his creation. He cares for the for the world. Interesting that Jesus in John 3.16 said, for God so loved the world, and then you read on to the New Testament, this image of new, cre- new heavens and new earth, new creation runs through the New Testament, that actually God's plan for rescuing and transforming uh, what's gone wrong in this world is not just about you and me and our personal relationship with Jesus. There's something much bigger going on as, as well. And of course, 1 Corinthians 15, that great resurrection hope Paul holds out. We're not going to be floating around in heaven in, a, in the sky somewhere in resurrected bodies. We're going to be walking in a new heavens and a new earth. So there's a physical quality uh, to salvation as well. And I think we've missed some of that. That's the theological. Apologetically, I also say to people, what's interesting is one of the big problems in the environmental movement right now is how do you convince people that you should do something? Um, you know, what's the motivation of something? You know, Greta Thunberg or whoever says, you know, uh, everything. You know, look at look at the look at the climate crisis, and then then has the question of someone saying, well, why should I care, Greta? I think the environmental movement has a problem because they can resort to emotion. Well, look at this polar bear sinking. Well. Perhaps I don't care. Well, okay, you should uh, you should do something because if we don't look after creation, if we don't look after the environment, uh, you know, human beings will suffer. Well, that's very selfish. You know, it suggests that creation is only there to help us. Okay, you should do something for future generations. Well, maybe I don't plan to have any children. And every single justification of the environmental movement ultimately fails. And I think you see this right now. Greta can sail on as many boats as she wants and protest outside as many schools as she wants. It doesn't change behaviour. Because to change behaviour, you need a spiritual transformation. Okay, so uh, Greta, uh, I mean, is a very engaging young lady, um, but her messages are so utterly depressing. Um, you know, is, is there hope for her? If, if Greta were sitting over here, what would you say to her? I think I'd be saying there's a couple of things. There's a wonderful quote, um, which I won't be able to get exactly because I didn't bring it with me. Um, There's a gentleman called Gus Speth, who was a US climate advisor for many years, and a uh, leading scientist. He has a great quotation where he says, I used to think um, that the greatest problems facing the world in terms of environmentalism were, 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 were pollution and, cli- and global warming and uh, sea level acidification, all those kind of things. And he said, I thought we could solve, with good science, we could solve those problems in 30 years or so. I now realize that the greatest challenges facing us environmentally are greed and selfishness. Mm. And those those require a spiritual transformation, and scientists don't know how to do that. And I think one of my conversations with, with Greta would be, firstly, how do you deal with the core issues? The, She's looking at the symptoms. You're looking at the symptoms. She? And yeah. I agree with you about the symptoms. Sure. Not entirely, but I largely agree with you about the symptoms. And here's the thing. You don't change things just by terrifying people into this is what will happen. Um, I think even look at the New Testament, which is honest about our condition. Ultimately, it wins us with there's a condition and there are some there are some consequences if you don't deal with that. But the biggest message of the New Testament is about the love of Christ and yeah. the welcome waiting us if we deal with it. And we have to find a way of injecting hope into the environmental movement. I think Christianity can offer something around there. And also we can offer a far greater motivation because we can say the Christian motivation uh, to, to take care for the environment is God gave us this incredible gift. It's absolutely incredible gift. And if somebody gives you an incredible gift, your wife at Christmas gives you an amazing gift that celebrates and, sum, and, and sums up her love for you, you're going to look after that. And I think Christians have to, have to rediscover the power of building an environmental ethic based on gratitude. And we do need to do better as well. And my favourite hymns for many years has been that the favourite, uh, Maltby Davenport's famous hymn, you know, This Is My Father's World. Mm-hmm. And to go, I remember every time I sing that hymn, thinking to myself, you know, if this is our father's world, Christians need to realise we ought to take some better care of it as well. And so putting our hands up and going, we could 
do we could do better too. Okay, you seem very articulate and, uh, and very self-assured in the best sense of that word. You're by no means arrogant. Uh, do you think there's any room for doubt in the Christian faith? I mean, let, let's be frank here. Do you have doubts about anything? Yes, yeah, so another great question, David. I think I think I would want to break it down uh, and say I think there are two types of doubts. I think there's I think there's honest doubt and dishonest doubt. Dishonest doubt is the kind of doubt that says, hmm, you know, I, I I fear some of the consequences that might follow if I'm a Christian. Maybe there are some, you know, there are some moral consequences, some choices about my life. And so actually by doubting, um, I'm, on, I'm obviously on podcast, so doing the, the quote marks with my fingers didn't really help. But there we are. Listeners can imagine. Our people get the picture. People get the picture. Um, dishonest doubt can be quite useful because you can keep God at a distance. Well, you know, I can't be 100% sure, and so therefore I'm not going to fully commit. There's a dishonest doubt, and I think the New, the New Testament is quite strong in the way it describes that. You know, Book of James talks about a double, you know, double-minded man tossed about by, you know, the winds of whatever. And I think that's not an attractive picture. On the other hand, Jesus also said, those who seek will find. He had time for genuine questioners and genuine seekers. And I think, therefore, there is a space for honest doubt as a Christian going, I, I'm not sure about this. I, I, I want to get some certainty on this. I don't have an answer to this question. And I think as Christians, we should be clear on the fundamentals. You know, I think if you, if you doubt that Jesus rose from the dead... You're going to find it very Your hard. Faith to be. isn't vain, sure. Yeah, or you're going to very find it very hard to yeah. be a Christian yeah. if you if you doubt that. But are there other things that I think? Yeah, I think you can, as long as the question is what, how are you processing that spiritually? So, I wouldn't say for me. You asked me if I doubt. I don't think I doubt. I do have unanswered questions, mm-hmm. um, and you know they 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 sort of come and go with what those are. And I think one of the things I learned very early on, actually, out of my Speaker's Corner experience taught me this. I, for many years, have sort of tried to mentally maintain two boxes in my brain, as it were. One marked, you know, showstoppers. I need to get the questions in this box answered, or I really can't go on. And annoying questions mm-hmm. that I would like to get an answer to. And 20 years ago, there were probably four or five questions in that showstopper box. By God's grace, that's now empty. Mm-hmm. There's quite a lot still jostling around in the, you know, I'd like to get an answer uh, to this and um, occasionally I'll pick them out and look at them pray them over but in each case I'm like you know I I trust God I believe the resurrection I trust Christ and that means I go well this is an annoying question right now Christ is much much bigger so putting our questions in perspective can be very helpful one thing I would say as well I'd love to see more churches David become places where questions and searching and doubts are welcome well churches should become you know it's a bit of a cliche but safe places where you know I think Christians often feel threatened if people yeah. ask questions, but it's not. No, we don't need to. I find the folk are genuine at asking questions. They're usually halfway there to become followers of Jesus because they are yeah. intrigued by the claims of Christianity. I agree with you. I've got a friend in, in Toronto, and I've come across folks in the UK now who have been doing the same thing. I've got a friend of mine in Toronto, pastors a huge church out there. You know, He ends every sermon with Q&A, takes three questions via text. He says, it just. I've learned it works mm-hmm. so well. Uh, and then had a friend of mine down south who, you know, was doing a, a new church plant in the outskirts of London. One of the very first evangelistic events he came up with, he invented, he came up with an event called Table Ten at the Red Lion because next door to the church was the pub, and he put it around, put word around the village that every Monday night he'd be at Table Ten in the pub for eight till ten o'clock, and people could bring any questions 
doesn't matter, anything. And the first few weeks, he said he got nobody, then one, then two, then four, six, eight. He said within a few months of doing it, they were getting 70, 80 people. Wow. The pub was buying all of his beer for him. And it's he said, it was great. It's band, doesn't it? But it was very, he said, yeah. literally, it was just me and a table. And, it's and, he, and he said, but the accessibility, because people, it, it transmitted the message, as you say, the church is a safe place for questions. And I think for people who are searching, and for young people as well, who are perhaps coming across things at school or university, I think if churches and pastors and leaders encourage that, you know, it is okay to ask questions, you're not you're not a weak Christian because of that. Okay, well let's move on. Our, you know, I know our podcast listeners are in their cars just now, or you're in the middle of a jog, or whatever you're doing. Just keep running, keep the pace up. Um, faster, 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 faster! Come on, come on, come on! One <laughs> kind of last question. You wrote a book recently. I love the title, uh, "The Atheist Who Didn't Exist." <laughs> Tell us about the book. Well, that book, um, uh, David, grew out of a few years ago now. There was all the uh, all the, the so-called new atheist books, uh, you know, popping up across the media. Um, I'm over here on this side of the Atlantic. Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, has now sold 7 million copies. So I always say, although Richard may not believe in God, um, his bank manager gives thanks every day. <laughs> and um, and these books were getting a lot of airtime. Richard was getting lots of airtime, as were others. And what I, what I found frustrating is the arguments were terrible. The argument, I remember the first time I read The God Delusion, expecting to be challenged. I was like, this is... It's just nothing. It's well written. It's very well written. Yeah. But there's not a lot of content. And then I saw Christians writing responses that were actually really good responses um, from really good, serious-minded Christians. And nobody was buying them because they were boring. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so I thought, okay, there's a need to try and write a book responding to the likes of Dawkins and, and, and atheism and stuff that's fun to read. Um, C.S. Lewis once said something interesting, actually. He said the reason he wrote fiction was he said often the, the front doors of people's minds are guarded by watchful dragons that won't let arguments in the front door. And he said, I wondered whether using fiction we could tiptoe past the watchful dragons and go through the side door. And I remember thinking, well, I... I can't write fiction, but I have been told I could be quite funny. So I wonder whether we can tickle the dragon under the nose and while it's rolling on its back with its legs in the air, we run through the front door anyway. And so that's what the book does. It tries to be funny and engaging, lots of comedy. Um, you know, You're so, a funny guy. Several people have told me the footnotes are the, the, the best thing, the best footnotes they've read in any book ever. And the book was designed to be really a book that you can give to your non-Christian friend and say, look, you may not agree with everything Andy said, but you'll laugh you enjoy it. And what's great is that's the feedback I've been consistently getting. One of my um one of my favorite as lots of stories, one of my favorite sort of recent stories was I, I was talking to a to a lady at a conference um a wee while ago who'd who who came up to thank me for the book and she said, What I love about the book, she said, I'd um my son, who's a teenager, had sort of more or less given up on his faith. Um she said, But I was reading a book and I had it on the table at, at breakfast and my son kind of picked it up and went, What's this then? And she said what it was. She said, oh, Christian being funny. And he read the first three pages of how it was chortling. And he goes, can I borrow this, mum? And he took it off school. And she said, all day at school, when he was supposed to be learning, mm -hmm. she was, he was sending her text, text photos of his favourite passage. And she said, she said, I just wanted to encourage you. She said, that book basically started a conversation about faith again, my son, and he's now coming to church again. It just needed something to get the conversation going. Okay, is um, that the last book you wrote? It is. That's the last book I wrote. I've written an academic book on the Quran, that book, and then we're current, I'm working next year on um, the Muslims and Christians worship the same God. And then immediately after that, actually, I've got just got the contract almost signed with the publisher. I'm going to be doing a book called How to Talk About Jesus Without Looking Like an Idiot. Oh, that sounds great. <clears throat> okay, we're coming to land. I see the landing lights ahead, and let's begin our descent. Andy Sauce is a great ministry. How can you help the local church? What resources mm -hmm. are you guys offering these days? Yeah, so there are there are a couple of things we do uh, for local churches. One is uh, we've mentioned already the short answer videos, 
And lots of churches actually tell me they, they're using those with their young people. Where can we find them? Small groups. You can find those on the SOLAS website. So Which SOLAS, S-O-L-A-S hyphen C-P-C, Centre for Public Christianity, .org. Or if you're on Facebook, just put SOLAS uh, or my name into the Facebook search, you will find us. And those videos are free to use, so don't have to ask us. Use them in any context that will help your church ministry. Um, then we also do something called the Confident Christianity Conference. We tour that around the country, also on the website, and that's a big evangelism training day. And we do four or five of those a year, so no matter where you are in the country, there should be one coming within 90 minutes drive of you and over any two-year periods. And then lastly, if you're a church leader or somebody involved in, in church leadership thinking, I would love to, you know, to perhaps do an evangelistic event that really engages people. You know, so often churches do like evangelism services and nobody comes. One of the things that Solas specializes in, we do these events where we work with churches to, to do something like you know, rent a coffee shop or a restaurant or some neutral space in the town. And then I and one of the team come do a very engaging kind of 20-minute talk. And then we have Q&A. And we find do that couple with coffee and dessert and whatever. You pack places out. We did one the other week in Aberdeen. It was standing room only in the local Costa Coffee. And uh, we would love to work with churches to help you put those events on. Great. Well, solace, solace. You say tomorrow, we see tomorrow. Whatever you call it. Thank you, Andy, so much for being... We will do this again. It's been such fun. The time has just flown. And, uh, you know, we've got stuff that we could talk about all day, but thanks for coming today. It's been great being on the, uh, on the show, David. Thanks for having me. Blessings. 